Good morning. Today is January 2nd, 2014, and I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Understanding the Law. I'm your host, Peter Lamont. I am a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast where we discuss a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome and encourage calls from our listeners. If you have a question or if you'd like to discuss one of today's topics on the air, please give us a call at 347-855-8831. That'll take you into our switchboard and then we'll get you on the air to answer your questions. So I'd like to uh, welcome our listeners to 2014. It's going to be a brand new year uh, for the radio show. I want to give you some updates as to what we have in store for this year. Uh, First of all, I'd like to thank all of our listeners and all of our callers uh, who have made the show very successful uh, in 2013. Moving forward in this year, we have a brand new website. It is uh, www.understandingthelawradio.com, and uh, it's got some important information about upcoming shows. Obviously, uh, you can listen to the show from the website. Uh, you can uh, contact us if you want to have a topic discussed. Um, there's sponsorship opportunities, so I encourage you to check out the website. Also, today we are going to be launching our brand new Facebook page uh, for the radio show. And uh, once that's up, we will certainly send out uh, an email to all of our Facebook fans who have liked our firm page, as well as our other social media outlets. And uh, we would appreciate it if our fans from social media uh, and clients and that, that sort of thing would, uh, would look at the new Facebook page for the radio station and like it. Um, its purpose is going to be a very functional and interactive uh, sort of platform. Right now we receive a number of questions on our regular Facebook page from people who listen to the radio show. We'd like to kind of separate that so that we've got a separate page that is uh, really just for our radio listeners, and it will allow you to post questions and inquiries and suggest topics that you'd like to hear some information about on the, uh, on the air. So it's going to be an exciting year. Uh, we're going to have some contests throughout the year, and um, we're going to have a whole host of new guests and new topics. Uh, we're working on reformatting the show, uh, although it will generally stay the same in the sense that we're going to provide um, a main topic or two, and then we'll do some uh, some uh, recent legal news and that sort of thing. But uh, it's going to be an exciting year, and I'd like to thank you all uh, for listening. So today, um, we're going to talk about a few things. The first, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the new year and uh, the opportunity that we all have to create meaningful, structured goals, whether you're an individual or a business. And then I want to get into snow removal and liability. Um, right now on the East Coast and most states in the, in the Midwest, we are, are having a snowstorm. And uh, it's, it's a very good time to talk about 
liability and responsibility for both the homeowner and a business owner. So we're going to get into that. Uh, finally, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about post-holiday debt relief. Uh, the holidays are over. Everybody has uh, you know, purchased presents. And for the most part, uh, statistically, people max out credit cards during the holidays and end up getting into uh, some financial situations. So we'd like to offer some insight as to what you could do if you are having financial problems after the holidays. And, um, you know, finally, we're going to talk about uh, the minimum wage law. Um, we have had uh, a number of inquiries over this, this weekend uh, when we posted on Facebook uh, the changes to the minimum wage law. And we're going to get into what states are affected, how the whole thing happens. And I encourage you, if you do have questions, as many of you did uh, throughout the weekend, to give us a call and we'll be able to answer those questions on the air. So um, hopefully that will be something of interest and, and clear up some confusion that we've seen from some of the Facebook posts. So let's get right into it. Let's talk about the new year and goal setting. And while this isn't necessarily a legal topic, um, when you take the time to set goals and, and actually write them down, put them on paper, you're doing a few things. Okay, whether you're a business or an individual, first of all, you are um, analyzing what it is your outcome of something, whether it's a business venture or a personal endeavor, will be. And just by putting that down on paper so that you have an end goal in sight is very helpful. And while there's a lot of personal development that you can gain from goal setting, there's also a lot of business success, personal success, and believe it or not, ways to limit your liability or other legal hazards throughout the year. Uh, the idea here is that you need to have, whether you're a business or an individual, a clear goal for yourself or your company through the year. Um, the way that we do it is that we have an overall set of yearly goals that we like to uh, shoot for, you know, and we'll lay them out on paper. And those will be our, our year goals that we're going to try to accomplish, whether it's, uh, you know, increasing our customer service or um, reaching more, you know, clients, uh, answering more legal questions, whatever it might be. Well, those general goals are going to be put down on paper. Then we get into the specifics of each month and how we're going to take those overall goals and sort of spread them out throughout the 12 months of the year. And we break it down even further into weekly goals. So we you know, find this extremely helpful. And I think that for the most part, many of the business leaders that we have worked with or spoken with and uh, a lot of personal development leaders believe that you know, goal setting, writing something down on paper, is tremendously empowering. And while, you know, there's this whole idea of New Year's resolutions and how many of us set resolutions but don't actually stick to it, well, a resolution and saying something in your head like, um, you know, I want to uh, get a raise this year or I want to travel, when you say those things, it's very easy to say it, wish it, and then, you know, out it goes. But if you commit to it, and putting it down on paper can help you. Uh, if you're a business, you're going to commit to increasing your customer base or commit to increasing your productivity. 
If you're an individual, you're going to commit to uh, perhaps being more outgoing and meeting more people. But until you put them down on paper, they're just thoughts. Once you have them down, now you've got to take the steps to actually act on them. And the best way that we have found, and this really kind of coincides with a lot of the popular personal and business development strategies, is incremental changes. You know, small bits, baby steps, in other words. You can't say, I want to increase my, uh, my customer base as a business and not take baby steps to do it, not work on your marketing or your advertising, uh, your social media presence. You can't just say it and ha- you know, hope it all comes. You've got to take these baby steps to accomplish what it is that you've set out for, for the year. Um, now, while that is you know, a bit of personal and business development, what's important from a legal sense is that as a business, by setting out your goals this early in the year, you're going to help yourselves eliminate some liability. And this, this is true to an extent for individuals as well. But the idea behind it is this. How many times have you ended up as a business or an individual having to um, do something at the last minute because you didn't adequately plan out what it is that you were going to do? I would venture to say frequently because that's how most people operate. Most lawyers, in fact, work like that. And I personally don't know how anybody can work like that, where you're waiting till the last minute, you're under the gun, and you know, you've got to push this work out. We have a very, very strict um, procedure in our offices. Uh, nobody waits till the last minute. There are always those times where an emergency has come up. The court calls you and says, we want you in court tomorrow morning, and we need you to file the brief. And there was no prior warning. It just happens. But for the most part, we have very hard deadlines for our work because we believe that when you take a structured block of time and schedule those activities that you have to do, that A, you're doing a better job for your clients, and B, you are preventing mistakes by rushing. You know, if you're, if you're in college or in, uh, in, in school, think about how many times you've waited to the last minute to do a paper and then you you spend all night working on it and you know it's not your best work because how could it be you know when you wait for the last minute so um, the same holds true for businesses plan out your year plan out your weeks plan out your months have meetings within your company to sort of develop the strategy of how you're going to move forward what you'll find is that you're not running around at the last minute. The work product is better and, and higher quality, and you're going to actually decrease stress, and this holds true for individuals as well. So I just want to start off today by talking uh, about this goal-setting idea, and whatever you want to call it, um, resolution, goal-setting, it is very important that everyone, individuals and businesses alike, engage in that sort of goal-setting, laying out your year. It will ensure that you have a more successful year. All right, now I want to move into uh, what's going on today and tomorrow, at least on the East Coast, and that is major snowstorms. Um, you know, we've seen footage from Chicago and some other cities in the Midwest where you know, they're under 12 uh, inches of snow, 
And uh, we're here on the East Coast, and the storm is, is rapidly approaching. And so by tonight uh, into tomorrow, we're expecting to have somewhere between 8 and, and 12 inches. And so, you know, the idea of snow is great for some. Skiing, snow day is for kids. But there is, believe it or not, um, a great potential for liability risk arising out of snow and ice. Now, I have to start off by saying that each state has their own set of laws concerning premises liability. And that's what area of law snow and ice removal fall under, premises liability. Okay, premises essentially means a property, a sidewalk, a mall. Um, that's the, the general overall term. But we're going to talk specifically about snow and ice removal under premises laws. Again, each state having their own laws, you're going to have to either give us a call so we can explain your state's law to you or at least point you in the right direction or, you know, Google it yourself and you can, you can get um, the statute online so that you can see what your state laws are. I'm going to talk about common law and the laws of New Jersey today, which are very similar to many of the other states throughout the country. Uh, but I don't want you to think that this is uh, the be-all, end-all for your state. So the rule in New Jersey is this. If you are a commercial landowner, your business, you have a non-delegable duty to maintain your sidewalk in a safe condition. Well, what does all that mean? Well, basically it means that as a business owner, you have to make sure that your sidewalks, any public sidewalk abutting your premises, Okay, so if you are, for example, a restaurant, a pizza place or a Chinese restaurant and uh, you're physically located, you know, off of a public sidewalk, you have a duty to make sure that the sidewalk in front of your premises is safe for pedestrians who may be traversing or walking in front of, of your store. Now, conversely, resident, residential property owners, right, you own a house, <clears throat> You're not a commercial business owner. Uh, it's just your residence. You do not have a legal duty to maintain your sidewalk free from snow and ice. Now, this is confusing to many people because what we find is that there's state law and then there's your municipal law. Right? Like, so, for example, in our town, we have a municipal law that says that you must remove snow and ice from your sidewalk within 24 hours of the um, cessation of snowfall. So when the snow stops, you've got 24 hours to remove the snow. Now, what happens to a residential property owner when you know John Doe is walking down the street and you've not shoveled your sidewalk? He slips and falls on snow and ice and gets injured. Well, you have, in theory, violated your municipal laws, and you could end up getting a fine, whatever that might be, from your municipality. But John Doe, who slipped and fell, let's say he fractured his arm. Can he sue you? Is there a legal theory of negligence because you didn't shovel your sidewalk? And at least in New Jersey, the answer is no. 
Now, I want to read the specific language um, that, that talks about sidewalk liability in New Jersey. So, according to our state statute, the owner or occupant of a residential premises abutting a public sidewalk is not required to keep the sidewalk free from the natural accumulation of ice and snow. Now, there is an exception, and here's what it is. A residential landowner can be liable if in clearing the sidewalk of ice and snow, he or she, through their own negligence, creates a new element of danger other than that caused by natural elements. What, what does that mean? Well, if I go out and I do shovel my sidewalk and I put down ice melt and it, it, it melts during the day and at night it refreezes and so now there's a, a thin layer of ice on the sidewalk and a pedestrian walks by and slips and falls and gets injured. I'm still not liable for that person's injuries because the ice is a naturally occurring uh, phenomenon. I didn't create the ice. If I had put down, uh, let, let's say I put down uh, motor oil on the sidewalk, right? So I'm using my snowblower to plow off my uh, sidewalk, and I don't realize that there is a, a puncture of my either oil or gas tank of my snowblower. Well, whether or not that's possible, I don't know, but let's assume for a minute for these purposes that there's a leak in your snowblower and it hits the pavement and creates a slick um, uh, texture on, on the sidewalk. Now, somebody walks down your sidewalk, slips and falls and gets injured, you are responsible because that element of oil or gasoline that's now on the sidewalk is not something that's naturally occurring. So under that set of circumstances, you could be theoretically liable for negligence. But in the overall general sense of things, if you are a residential landowner and you have a sidewalk in front of your property, you don't have a legal duty to shovel it. You might have a duty within your municipality that if you don't do it will result in a fine, but we're talking about negligence. And from a negligence standpoint, you don't have to remove that snow and ice. Now, obviously, uh, it's always a good idea to remove the snow and ice because simply because you don't have a legal duty to do something doesn't necessarily mean that someone's not going to sue you. Um, we've talked about this in the past, but in our current legal system, all anyone needs to sue somebody else is essentially a good faith basis to sue. And that's such a, a generic, vague term that unless your lawsuit is completely frivolous, you know, you will most likely have the, um, the ability to file a lawsuit against someone. And so um, it's always a good idea to make sure that you do remove the snow and ice. But if you're a residential property owner, you know, there's some, um, uh, you know, I think uh, satisfaction in knowing that if you do shovel and you do lay down some, some rock salt or some ice melt, you're not going to be liable if you don't do a great job. And that's really what the statute uh, in, in, the, in the law in New Jersey is for. 
you can't be held liable or negligent because you attempted to clear the snow, but you didn't do it in a perfect manner. You know, it's, as long as you didn't create the condition, you're okay. Now, that's completely different for commercial landowners. So commercial landowners, whether you run or own a strip mall, or an apartment complex, okay? An apartment complex in New Jersey is considered a commercial property. So the fact that there might be people living in the, in the apartments, let's say it's a garden apartment setup, you, the landowner, all right, the owner of that complex, you have a duty to make sure that your sidewalks are free from snow and ice. Now, that holds true for any commercial property. If there is a sidewalk abutting your commercial property, you have a duty to keep it free from snow and ice. Now, I'm going to read uh, the language from the statute for commercial entities in New Jersey. Uh, the law imposes the owner of a commercial or business property the duty to use reasonable care to see that the sidewalks abutting the property are reasonably safe for members of the public who are using them. In other words, the law says that the owner of a commercial property must exercise reasonable care to see to it that the condition of the abutting sidewalk is reasonably safe and does not subject pedestrians to an unreasonable risk of harm. So where this is completely the opposite of a, a residential landowner, a commercial landowner must remove the snow and ice from the sidewalk. And if the commercial landowner does not remove the snow and ice in a proper and reasonable manner, okay, for example, they uh, use a snowblower and it compacts the bottom layer of snow and now freezes overnight. And someone walks down the sidewalk and slips and falls on it that commercial landowner could be held to be fully liable for that person's injuries. Um, it's not necessarily expected that a commercial landowner sit by the front of their store and shovel an ice melt all day long. Remember, the, the language in the statute says reasonably. So if it is reasonable and you don't do it, then you're going to be held liable. Is it reasonable to say that some business, landowner, commercial landowner, who's open nine to five should make sure that during the course of that nine to five period, they have shoveled, they have thrown down ice melt. Yeah, that's reasonable. I mean, is it reasonable to make that person come back at two in the morning and shovel an ice melt? Probably not. But the idea here is that as a commercial landowner, you actually have a legal responsibility that residential landowners do not. Now, taking this idea one step further, there are commercial landowners who may own a strip mall, let's say, and there's tenants that rent space from you. And in your lease, as any good commercial lease would have, there's a clause that talks about the responsibility of the tenant. And oftentimes you'll see provisions in the lease that say that the, uh, the tenant is responsible for clearing off the sideways, keeping the sidewalks um, free from ice and debris and snow. 
Now, I'll give you a real-world example. A few years ago, we were involved in a case where uh, in, in Passaic, a Chinese food restaurant had uh, recently opened, and there was obviously a public sidewalk abutting the front of the restaurant. And uh, during the course of a very heavy snowstorm, they shoveled and salted. But they did it just once. And by the end of the night, snow and ice had accumulated. Uh, So we're talking about somewhere around eight inches of snow. And they had shoveled when there was approximately four inches of snow on the ground. So that left four inches of snow and some ice. And while the restaurant was opened, it was approximately 9.30 at night, an individual was walking down the sidewalk to get into the restaurant, and they slipped and fell. And uh, it was a very bad fall. It was a uh, uh, trimelar fracture of the ankle. So the ankle had fractured in multiple places. And it required surgery and um, hardware insertion into the ankle and then a second surgery to remove the hardware. And so this individual sued the restaurant. And the theory was that as a commercial uh, landowner, you have a, a responsibility to keep the sidewalk safe. So they sued not only the Chinese restaurant, but the actual strip mall owner. And the strip mall owner said, I don't have to make anything safe because I passed that duty, that responsibility, on to my tenant, the Chinese food place. And the Chinese food restaurant's attorney said, wait a minute, you can't do that. Yes, it says in the lease that we have to maintain the sidewalk and we have to keep it uh, you know, safe and, and free of, of snow and ice. But you have a legal obligation pursuant to New Jersey statutes that require you, the landowner, to make sure that it's free of snow and ice. So this comes, uh, you know, and and develops into this theory of the commercial landowner has a non-delegable duty. What does that mean? You as the commercial landowner can't say it's your responsibility. You're the tenant. It's your responsibility. I wipe my hands clean. You still have that duty. If your tenant fails to clean the sidewalk, you are ultimately responsible. So it's very important that when you are um, you know, dealing with snow and ice in the wintertime and you have a tenant and you own the property, that you inspect that property. Make sure that your tenant is doing what, what you want them to do with respect to snow and ice removal. And if they're not, you need to come with a crew and clean it up. Otherwise, you could be held liable. So, um, you know, to summarize and, and keeping it very simple, as a residential landowner, you don't have a legal duty. You won't be held negligent if you don't shovel your sidewalk and someone gets hurt. The only time you will be responsible is when you have created a situation that is separate from the snow and ice. Like, for example, um, putting a foreign substance on the sidewalk, oil or gas that has leaked from a blower or, or whatnot, and somebody gets injured. As a commercial landowner, you always have a duty to make sure that that sidewalk is kept in a reasonably safe manner. So with snow coming and with uh, snow already falling in the Midwest, and uh, you know we could be in for a lot of snow this winter, I think it's very important for you to understand your duties and responsibilities. And I encourage you that if you, if you do have questions, uh, 
before you get into a situation where you're being sued, give us a call. We'll be happy to answer the questions that you might have. Uh, you can do it you know, right now on the air at 347-855-8831, or after the show has aired, you are, are free to call us at our office at 973-949-3770, and we would be happy to speak to you and hopefully try to answer your question with respect to snow and ice removal. All right, now moving into our next topic, and this is uh, an important topic this time of year. Uh, Holidays are over, and most people find themselves in some uh, debt situation. It could be significant or it could be very limited. But we want to talk today about post-holiday debt and what you should be doing right now in order to avoid problems later. So there's no secret that Uh, Most Americans overspend, especially at the holidays, and they rely on credit in order to to purchase the products and and presents that they need. And at the end of the year, you know, you find yourself um, with a significant amount of money that you owe. And if you listen to some of the the parody Christmas songs, they talk about, you know, six months of debt. Um, You know, even uh, Ebenezer Scrooge said, uh, that uh, you know, every Christmas you find yourself you know, paying bills without having the money to pay them. So I think it's a common phenomenon. And first I'd like to say um, that it's nothing to necessarily be ashamed of. I, I can't stand listening to these, uh, whether it's a lawyer or a debt collection place or a debt consolidation place, that make the consumer feel badly. Okay. Yeah, there are those people out there that knowingly spend way too much money. They never have the intention of paying things back. And, you know, they're writing bad checks. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about everyday average people who are struggling to get by. Let's face it. This is a tough time that we live in. And unless you are in the uber wealthy category, it's tough. And Things are expensive. You know, uh, just the cost of everyday living, uh, electric and gas and, and, you know, keeping your car in in shape and and all sorts of things. Just very, very expensive time that we live in. So, number one, you should not feel guilty. Feeling guilty is not going to help you. Okay? The sooner that you realize and acknowledge that you have a problem, the quicker that you can get some help. Okay, this finances, especially with debt, is not something that you should stick your head in the sand and say it'll go away or I don't want to deal with it right now. Because if you do that, you are ultimately going to be in a very bad spot and nobody is going to be able to help you. Okay, so first thing is don't feel guilty. Second thing, you must acknowledge that you have a problem. Okay, and I'm not talking about it. You know, I would like like a, a Alcoholics Anonymous, admit that you have a problem. I'm talking about just being realistic with yourself. Know that you have a situation and do not stick your head in the sand. You need to get help. Okay, so now you've gotten over the feelings of guilt. You know you have a problem. Let's say that you owe $10,000 and um, unfortunately, instead of getting a raise this uh, December, you find out today that you've been laid off, 
Okay, so now you lost your job. You have $10,000 worth of debt that you had planned on being able to pay back throughout the next three, you know, few months, but now you don't have a job. Right, this, this scenario plays out so often, it's not even funny. And you, know, you, can't, you can't criticize people. You have to just sort of understand what they're going through. And, and what I want to talk about right now is what you do when you're in that scenario. So obviously, having lost your job, um, realizing that you owe $10,000 that you cannot pay back right now, you have some options. Option one is to stick your head in the sand. Don't think about it now. Try to get a job and deal with it later. That is not a good idea. But that's what most of us do. Creditors start calling. What do we do? We don't answer the phone. They leave messages. Do we listen to them? No, we delete them. We get a letter in the mail, we conveniently lose it, right? Now, when you get those coupons from from the retail store in the mail, you never lose them. But these letters come, they get lost, they get thrown out. And it's really just this, this idea of procrastination and fear. And I don't want you to be afraid because there are things that you can do. Let's talk about what you can do. First of all, once you have an understanding of what sort of financial situation you're in, you have the option of, number one, calling the creditor and trying to work with them directly, letting the creditor know what your situation is, and asking for some sort of payment plan. Often, right, people don't think that this is going to work, but often it does. You know, you might have a reasonable creditor who understands your situation and will work with you, maybe reduce your payments so that you can afford it. That is, is option one. But option two, what do you do if you, you call the creditor and they refuse to help you? Well, now you should think about going to see one of these debt consolidation companies. And before I get into it, let me, let me preface it with, with this. There are a number of companies out there who prey upon people who have financial worries. And obviously, those are not the people you want to deal with. What you need to do if you're looking for a debt consolidation company is to find a company that is nonprofit, that's very important, nonprofit, and has some sort of recognition throughout your state. Okay, any of these debt consolidation places that are for profit, I would stay away from. It's the nonprofits that you want to go to. Those are the places that are going to try to help you. Now, what happens at a debt consolidation place? What, what do you do? Well, you go in and you meet with a counselor, and then that person's going to ask you for an overall picture of your finances. They're going to ask you to bring in your credit cards and your statements, and they're going to want to kind of assess your debt-to-income ratio. And they'll lay out for you a debt-to-income ratio form and show you here's what you make per month and here's what you owe. If what you owe and what you make is within a certain um, parameter, 
they may be able to negotiate with the creditors on your behalf and reduce your monthly payments. Debt consolidation places are not bankruptcy. It's not something that's going to make your debt go away. They attempt to negotiate with the creditors and they'll say to a credit card company, for example, we have an individual that we're going to be working with. Uh, can you reduce their interest rate or knock off their interest rate or reduce the principal? And because these credit card companies have worked with these debt consolidation places before, they know how the system works, that they'll be paid over time, and they're willing to negotiate. So that's, that's your second option. And what happens is you pay a monthly sum to the debt consolidation place. It goes into an account and they pay out your creditors. You oftentimes don't have to deal with the calls or the collection attempts because the debt collection company deals with those places for you. Oftentimes they'll give you a letter or a fax number or a phone number and they'll tell you that if you receive a call from a creditor after you've been accepted into the debt consolidation program that you are to notify that creditor that you are in a program. Uh, so that would be option two, debt consolidation. There's option three. You can always go to the bank and try to get a loan. But, uh, you know, unless you've got very good credit or you've got a house that has some equity in it, it's going to be very tough in this day and age to go get a loan to pay off consumer debt. Banks just don't want to lend the money. Uh, if you have a home and you've got equity in it, they're more willing to lend the money than if you don't. But, you know, oftentimes we've, we've seen people come in and say that they've um, gone to the bank with their pay stubs and they, they've explained it all to them. Uh, they just, they can pay it off over, over time, but they just couldn't pay it all the way the creditors wanted. And, you know, they look like good candidates for a loan on paper, but the banks just are not giving the loans. But that is an option, going to a private lender and getting a loan. What you have to be careful of is the interest rate that you're going to pay. If you can get a loan to consolidate your debt at a bank, you'll often find that the interest rates are relatively reasonable. Uh, but again, you know, it's, it's very infrequent. Well, at least that's what we're seeing right now with respect to banks wanting to give out loans. Now, the next option is bankruptcy. And bankruptcy sounds like a scary thing. And 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you know, maybe it was because it wasn't really understood. It was very mystical. And uh, what we've tried to do through our practice and through our, our video um, programs is to sort of, of brush past or blow past this, this mysterious aura of bankruptcy and to give our clients and our listeners a better sense of what it is. First of all, bankruptcy is not for everyone. You have to qualify for bankruptcy. You just can't say, I want to declare bankruptcy. Second of all, you honestly need an attorney. It doesn't matter sort of attorney you use. And what I mean by that is you don't have to go to a big firm. <clears throat> as long as the attorney is a qualified bankruptcy attorney admitted in the federal bankruptcy courts and, and you get along with that person, then that's all you need. You don't need some super large firm um, 
it's funny, last night I was listening to a program, and they were talking about consumer, or not consumer, but uh, commercial bankruptcies, and how a lot of the commercial bankruptcies are being filed in states other than Delaware and New York, because attorneys in New York, for example, typically charge on a Chapter uh, 11, typically charge $500 to $800 an hour. And that's really insane, if you ask me. Again, we're talking about businesses. But they're going to places like New Jersey and, and Virginia and other, other areas of the country where the attorney's fees are, are much more reasonable. Um, but getting back to our topic, bankruptcy is, if you qualify, a way for you to get an order from the court that eliminates certain debts and, you know, wipes them out, essentially. You don't have to pay them. How does an attorney determine whether or not you qualify for bankruptcy? Well, you have to come in and you've got to bring with you a variety of documents. And the attorney will tell you prior to the consultation what to bring in. And ultimately, they will run what is called a means, M-E-A-N-S, test to determine your debt-to-income ratio and whether or not you qualify for bankruptcy. Uh, it essentially calculates debt-to-income. You know, the attorney in this and his or her staff enter in all of your financial information, and then it, 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 it lets you know whether or not you can file. If you can file, you need to take a debt management course. Very simple. It is usually less than an hour. It can be done over the Internet. It can be done in person, or it can be done over the phone. But it is a mandatory prerequisite for filing. Uh, most often, like our offices, for example, if you come in for bankruptcy assistance, we help you do it all right here. Uh, you can sit down at one of our, our computer terminals and you can go through the online um, uh, you know, consulting session and or consultation session and, and be done with it. And then you get a certificate that the attorney files with the court. Um, afterwards, once your petition right? It's, it's the equivalent of a complaint in a civil case. Once your petition is prepared by the attorney, it gets filed with the court, and the court issues an automatic stay. And that means that none of your creditors can collect from you, harass you, call you, contact you in any fashion while the stay is in place. If there's a judgment against you, it's stayed. If there are garnishment orders filed against you to seize assets from your account, it is stayed, meaning they cannot seize your assets. Uh, if you have um, pending foreclosure, it's stayed. Even personal injury actions, um, certain issues arise out of, of personal injury actions that might either stay the case or uh, you know, put your damages on hold or, or whatnot. But the overall idea is that once your petition is filed, there's a stay put in place. Then the court analyzes your petition and your documents, and you go to court one time for what they call a 341 hearing. You go with an attorney. There are a number of questions that are asked of you. It is a relatively short, painless proceeding. And then, ultimately, you are granted a discharge from your debt, and the debt that is able to be discharged is wiped out. Now people say, well, wait a minute. Everybody's going to know I filed bankruptcy. 
So it's going to be in the paper. That is not true. While a bankruptcy is a public record, nobody's going to care enough to publish that somebody in town has filed bankruptcy. It just doesn't happen. There are so many thousands and thousands of people that file bankruptcy every day. The media doesn't care about that. So are you going to be in a local town paper? No. Well, it'll destroy your credit. That's another myth. It does stay on your credit report. But filing a bankruptcy, which will be on your report for approximately seven years, can actually help resolve your credit issues. Because if you continue to have judgments and and other debt-related orders issued against you, that's going to drag your credit score way down. But if you file bankruptcy, you can start working on building up your credit. And believe it or not, you can oftentimes get a car loan or a credit card within six months to a year of filing bankruptcy. So I think there's a lot of, of, um, of myths out there concerning bankruptcy, and, and um, it sort of forces people away from the idea. And while I'm not saying everyone should go out and file bankruptcy, I just want to let you know that it is an option. But with any of these options that we've discussed, the key is that you must identify that you have a problem. And then you must be willing to contact somebody to help you. Contact an attorney. Contact a debt consolidation company. Don't do nothing. Because once a judgment is issued, or once they start garnishing your wages, or levying your bank account, it becomes extremely difficult for anyone to help you. It also becomes extremely expensive. So I want to encourage you, if you have debt problems as a result of the holidays right now, it is not too early to start talking to somebody to try to set yourself up whether it's on a payment plan, whether you need somebody to help you, you know, look at your, your debt to income and figure out how you can start making payments, whether it's calling the creditors yourself, you must do something. I cannot stress the importance of you know, pulling your head out of the sand and, and facing this challenge head on. In the long run, you will be so much happier and feel liberated once you address the problem because it will not go away. All right. Um, we are running out of time, surprisingly. Uh, but one other thing that I would definitely like to talk about today is the uh, minimum wage law changes that have occurred in various states. And uh, there's been a lot of activity on our Facebook page this weekend, because last week we posted the changes to the minimum wage law. And there were a lot of questions that were raised. Uh, primarily, you know, I see states that are listed here, but I don't see my state. Why have you only addressed certain states? Well, let me give you the states that have changed so you have an understanding. Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Missouri, Montana, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Washington. All right, those are the states where there are new minimum wage laws for 2014. Let me answer the question that, that's been a very popular one. Why is my state not listed? Well, it's not that we got lazy and just decided to you know, pick these states. 
it's because there are no changes to the states that are not listed on our Facebook post or on our blog. Not every state has the issue of minimum wage law up for vote every year. Now, these states, for example, New Jersey, there was a vote in, in November that was submitted. Right? It was a, a bill that was proposed by the state legislature and that it was uh, submitted to the public to be voted on. Should you, you know, there be an increase in minimum wage? And in New Jersey, there was a, a resounding yes. And so the minimum wage in New Jersey has gone up a dollar. It went from seven twenty-five in, in 2013 to now being eight twenty-five. So we haven't omitted your state. It's because there's been no change to your state law. Well, the next question we've encountered is, well, why hasn't the legislature in our state done something? I can't answer that question for you. That's something that you have to take up with your state legislative representatives. You know, find out what's going on in your state, why there's not been a proposal for minimum wage increase. Um, you know, I, I would imagine that we're not going to see a minimum wage increase next year. You know, maybe the following year, maybe five years. You know, it doesn't happen every year. It's not something that you know, every year there's a minimum wage increase. Every year there are people that talk about the uh, benefits, pros and cons, I guess you could say, to increasing the minimum wage in particular states. But I want to just clear this up. The states listed on our blog and Facebook page, the states that I just you know, um, read off to you, those are the only states that have minimum wage law changes for 2014. Now, if you want to learn more about your state and the wage change, please give us a call, 973-949-3770, and uh, that's a number where you can reach us at our office after the show. I would be happy to talk to anybody about the minimum wage law change and how it might impact you uh, and what you can do about contacting your state's uh, legislative branch to uh, petition for minimum wage increase. Now, what's interesting, though, uh, is a debate that has arisen out of the minimum wage increase for 2014. And a lot of small business owners are complaining because um, for small businesses, a dollar increase in minimum wage is a lot of money because it's a dollar per hour. So if you're paying someone $7.25 an hour and now it's $8.25 an hour, is that going to have an impact on your ability to employ people? And that's, that's one of these, these big debates that's going on right now. Will minimum wage increases hurt or help the unemployment rate? And, and really, you know, it, it's kind of something that you've got to look at and decide for yourself because you know, it, it's an interesting topic. I know that a lot of the small business owners that we've talked to or that we've represented throughout the years, they're complaining and they're saying, you know, because of this increase in the minimum wage, we're now going to have to let go of one employee. And obviously that's not going to help the unemployment rate. Um, but then you take the position of the working class, the workers, and 
they say, well, you know, we've been working and we're getting seven twenty-five an hour, and that's not really fair. Cost of living has gone up, so we should be entitled to get more money on an hourly basis. And and so you've got to kind of weigh the arguments, and uh, it's interesting to to discuss this. I, I'm going to post a question after the show on our Facebook pages, including the new uh, radio Facebook page. I'd like to know what our listeners think about minimum wage increases. Does it help the economy and unemployment rate, or is it going to hurt it? Are you on the side of the small business owner, or do you believe as you know, uh, someone who is employed that you should be entitled to more money? Uh, and you know, even thinking further, what's the limit to minimum wage increases? Now, I, I remember seeing signs back in October um, from from Seattle, Washington, where you know there were people protesting, saying they wanted twelve dollars an hour, thirteen dollars an hour minimum wage. You know, is there a cap that would allow you know for small businesses to afford employees? It's a very interesting topic, and you really you have to to look at both sides. So I'd love to hear what your opinions are concerning minimum wage laws. So. Look for those questions, look for the new Facebook page, and uh, you know, like the page and engage us. Ask questions. And we want to answer your questions. We want to help you understand the law better than what you do right now. You know, what lawyers do is not always easy. It can be very complicated, but it's also not something that is so esoteric that you, know, you shouldn't have an understanding of how the law works. Uh, we say at the end of every broadcast that there's power in understanding the law, and that's the truth. If you understand your legal rights, even just a little bit better than you do right now, then you know you are gaining valuable knowledge that is going to help you in the long run. So I encourage you to engage us, to interact with us, to ask your questions. Don't be afraid to come on the air and ask a question. Don't be afraid to post something on our Facebook page and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always wondered this. You know, we're here to answer your questions. Well, with that being said, we're going to wrap up for today. I'd like to thank you for joining me, and I, I you know, wish you the best in this new year. Um, as it stands right now, we're going to be on the air every Thursday, 10 o'clock Eastern Time, and it will be an hour program. Uh, we are looking at expanding the program, um, but that will come later on in the year. And we encourage you to download the episodes, to subscribe to iTunes, and get the uh, the radio broadcast once they're uh, recorded, and so that you can understand the law better and you can follow along with us. So, again, I'd like to thank you for joining me, and we will be back next Thursday with more um, legal and business news. If you do have any questions once the show has completed, please call us at our office, 973-949-3770, or you can email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at Peter Lamont, P-E-T-E-R-L-A-M-O-N-T-E-S-Q.com, and we'll be happy to get back to you. Until the next time, I would like to thank you for joining me, and I'd like to remind you that there is power in understanding the law.
The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like taking those perfect New Year, New You portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. It's the best way to stay connected to everyone you'll heart most in 2019. So get ready to fall in love with iPhone XR on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE to learn more or visit a store today.